Hey guys, just a quick and important note before the episode begins. In the midst of me putting this episode together, uh, something very, very sad and shitty and unfortunate happened in the scene. So, uh, Jordan Blake passed away. For anybody who might not know, Jordan was the original vocalist for A Sky Like Drive and the EP that he was a part of with them, She Watched the Sky, was honestly like monumental for me growing up in that time period as you know a, a little emo kid who just frequented myspace for whatever i could hear from metalcore and post-hardcore and deathcore and the work that he did with the skylight drive it really really did have a big part in shaping the kind of music that i'll be listening to moving forward and without his influence and a skylight drive altogether for that matter there's a big part of my upbringing in the 2000s that would not exist. So what I want to do for this episode is not only dedicate it to Jordan, but also give my adoration for his material to all of you guys. So instead of the usual intro and outro song, what I'm going to be doing instead is taking some songs from She Watch the Sky and use those instead. So yeah, thank you and rest in peace, Jordan. Ulterior. I've said before that this podcast is for everybody. That's actually a lie because um, the woman who went on social media and complained about the Trophy Eyes Pit, this show is not for you because I talk about them scary bands. And actually quite a bit of said scary bands will be discussed today because I haven't gone for a minute. So the overall crux of this episode will be the records. And what I've done is I've taken seven records out of a release over the last three weeks and I will be going into detail on them. So the records of the episode or the records for this episode are from Waterparks, Enter Shikari, Brand of Sacrifice, Centralia, King Yosef, From Joy, and Balmura. Thank you so much. Thank you for tapping in and hope you guys enjoy this episode. I wouldn't really even know where to start when it comes to relaying the news from the alternative scene that have transpired in the time that I've been gone because it felt like everything happened from the Bad Omens tour to the Sleep Token tour to fucking Knocked Loose playing Coachella. Like, I hope you guys got to see that. If you haven't, go seek it out because that was genuinely a moment in time and speaking of tours knocked loose going out with motionless and white for the touring the end of the world which is going to be fucking massive uh the ghost inside and under oath with kim is romans like that tour package is insane and then so many other things that have been unveiled since then like bring me the horizon single out may 4th so the thursday of the week that this episode is dropping new bring me the horizon it's a single called loss go check it out because them boys kill it every single fucking time um, Fall Out Boy put out a vinyl pressed with Pete Wentz's tears or some shit like that. Like, the, the scene right now is, like, I don't want to say blossoming, but it's at the very least flourishing in a way that, for somebody like myself who has been tapped into the scene for almost my entire life, this stuff happens, like, once in every few years, it feels like. And right now, 
it's happening and it's happening on a grand scale. And I genuinely could not be any more happy to be part of this weird ass fucking music scene. Admittedly, there are some negatives too, like Bamboozle being canceled, which I don't really know what's happening with that or why that happened. But for that entire festival to be a no-go so close to the actual date, that is genuinely fucked up. And I feel for anybody who has had any plans derailed as a result of that. And while I'm sure this podcast won't be able to help anybody navigate through the negatives or the difficulties of anything with your life, I would hope that you can at least set aside the time for the next couple minutes, whatever it's going to take for me to get through this episode, and just, you know, block out anything, if that makes any sort of sense. But yeah, so I'm going to get into the actual music content now for the episode, and what I had mentioned about taking a handful of records from the last few weeks and talking about those specifically, I'm going to do the same thing with the singles, and the first one that I want to bring up is the brand new single by Wither Away, it is called CERN. I believe this is Wither Away's first original song since the album I Won't Find Hope In You, which is coming up on two years this month. Um, what that album did was ensure that I stay locked into whatever Wither Away do, because I think that their brand of emotionally driven metalcore is something that so many people can latch onto if they get the chance to hear this band. Like, I'm pretty confident in saying that I think a lot of you guys would fuck with this stuff, Um as far as this song goes, CERN, there is a certain part of JJ's delivery on vocals that mirrors the melodic instrumentation so perfectly and creates this formula for Wither Away to be incapable of missing in every element, whether that be the buildup in the verses or the explosion that comes in the chorus. They're all elements that I thought were like so evident and apparent on I Won't Find Hope in You, and the fact that, or what I perceive to be a fact, that Wither Away so seamlessly took those elements from that record and brought them into the single CERN, I have the highest of hopes for the future of Wither Away, and then also the strongest vote of confidence I can possibly give to them, because I think that they are fucking outstanding. It was also the number one ranked song for Scenic Overlook in week 15, I feel like that's important to note. Uh, the number one song for week 16 came from Spirit Box. It is The Void. You guys have heard me just fucking gush over this band at every opportunity that comes my way. And I will not apologize for doing it again, because I think Spirit Box have done it again. Genuinely, the ability within this project to take any sound of the genre, whether it lean into the territory of heavy or vibrant, it is remarkable just how fucking good and consistent they've been since their inception. I think the pacing of The Void is what was immediately able to pull me in, because it has this frantic and fast-paced feeling to it, without actually being just that. Like, even when it sounds like a song is moving rapidly, Courtney still takes her time letting her voice soar and 
craft these just angelic and beautiful melodies that lead into a giant chorus that is arena ready, just like the entire band all together. And I know it's not coming from just me. I know you guys have heard from every other fucking outlet that there is about Spirit Box because it's just been years of Spirit Box this, Spirit Box that, Eternal Blue this, Eternal Blue that, Holy Roller, whatever the fuck. There's a reason for it because Spirit Box truly, really are one of the best and most important bands to grace the scene within the last couple of years. And I feel like so privileged in so many ways whenever I get to talk about a new track from them like The Void. Brand new single out right now by Against the Current. It is called Good Guy. So like I said a bit ago, Spirit Box's The Void was the number one ranked scenic overlook song for week 16, but to be truthful, that week was maybe the most difficult time I've ever had in the history of Ulterior when it came to having to choose a top song because Good Guy had every goddamn right to be number one, and in most weeks of the year, it would have been. And I think part of my adoration for this song comes from seeing the progression of Against the Current continue to play out the way that it has because this year makes 10 years since the first time I came across the video for Closer Faster and just immediately off the rip, I embrace Against the Current as a pop-centric act. I had no problems at all with that being their core direction and their core sound, but the trajectory of their sound ever since the Fever EP has catapulted them in my mind from being a great band to one of the best in the world. And that's only going to grow for myself the more that they tap into their aggressive side, like how they do on Good Guy, because while the track is immensely fucking catchy, there is so much anger, emotion in Chrissy's voice to the point where I feel and believe every single lyric that she says. Like, I've just sang at random points myself, fuck whoever taught you how to love like that, because again, I believe it. Everything that she and the rest of the band did here, it captures this sense of authenticity that sometimes bands kind of miss the mark on when they go for, you know, a, a very emotionally driven song like Good Guy, but Against the Current did not fail whatsoever because they're incapable of failing, they're incapable of missing, they always hit the fucking mark, and that's what they did on Good Guy. Let's talk about motherfucking Sleep Token. And the new single, Do You Wish That You Loved Me? Every time, brother, every fucking time, Sleep Token drops something on the road to the release of Take Me Back to Eden, I telepathically relay to them the Shack meme where it goes, I owe you an apology, I wasn't really familiar with your game. And I say that because throughout the cycles for Sundowning and This Place Will Become Your Tomb, I didn't really care for them. Uh, some great songs here and there, sure, but at large, Sleep Token was not an act that I was going out of my way to champion. But 
now, they, honest to God, might be the most exciting band in the world for myself. Like, if it's not Static Dress or Bring Me the Horizon or Bad Omens, it's fucking Sleep Token. And a big reason for that is because of the versatility that makes it possible for them to go from something heavy and abstract like on The Summoning into a primarily chill song like Granite, and now ultimately an incredibly weird AI-sounding ballad like Do You Wish That You Love Me. The production gives off this feeling of, like, buttons being pushed in a really infectious manner while Vessel gives one of the best performances of his career thus far. It is a giant cluster of these really innovative and cool and out-of-the-box ideas that I think Sleep Token and everyone involved from a production end deserve all the credit in the world for being able to perfectly integrate into the lore of Take Me Back to Eden. I will not shut up about Sleep Token. I don't want to shut up about them. And when this album is out on May 19, so in two weeks, you guys, you might as well just mute me on Twitter, like on God. Waypoints is the name of the brand new single out right now from Dwellings. Maybe this is a bit of a left field pick for me to pull from the lot of singles that I've reviewed over the last couple of weeks, but I think it's for good reason because I truly do believe in Dwellings and the potential on their end to deliver some of the most impressive swan cartoons that the scene has today. Um, I think this song, Waypoints, is kept exciting all the way throughout without having to rely on the sometimes chaotic nature of the genre to do that. Like, it is a chill vibe while giving space to morph itself around Isaac's vocals that can perfectly match whatever is happening in the instrumentation. Um, the last minute and a half stretch encapsulates the song so well in the sense of how it can go from being kind of heavy to being really laid back. And it's just overall something that I was able to really enjoy, and I'm happy for that because, like I said, I do believe in Dwellings, and I have for a minute now, ever since first hearing Lemonade six years ago, and I would like for as many eyes and ears to be on them as possible when they release their new album, Little Garden, on June 30th. Alright, let's do the Beartooth discourse. Let's bring up the brand new single, Sunshine. I don't think that I can definitively say that Beartooth are in their comeback arc because two good singles in Riptide and Sunshine cannot be enough to make me believe they're going to deliver on a full record for the first time, in my opinion, since Disgusting. And I say that because Beartooth has a history of, for myself at least, putting out great singles and then just not following up with the rest of the album. But at the very least, however... What Sunshine does is it, well, no pun intended, um, it shines as bright of a ray of hope as one could have asked for in terms of being excited for the future of Beartooth. Um, 
I think the fake out after the first verse is so well done and genuinely surprised me hearing that acoustic chorus and how catchy the rhythm was, which only ended up blossoming from then on once the full band comes in for the second chorus. And what that ended up doing for me was kind of understanding like, okay, Beartooth, they do have like a new identity now for this next album. There is something to make it stand out from aggression and disease and below like it's not so or at least i don't think it's going to be so like uh downbeat in nature and so like hard rock driven they are taking chances now and that is actually really really fucking exciting i think sunshine is catchy and enthralling while keeping listeners guessing what's going to come next and if that is the kind of uh like thematic approach that they can take for the rest of the album beartooth are cooking for real, for real. New supergroup just dropped, Better Lovers, and they have a song called 30 Under 13. Better Lovers is a new act in its name, but not reputation because the band is made up of the former members of Every Time I Die, Sands, Keith Buckley and Andy Williams, Will Putney from Fifer and Autopsy, and Greg Pichado, formerly of The Dillinger Escape Plan. So this isn't just a supergroup, but I think that they can be the supergroup of the scene just one song in. Whenever I hear 30 Under 13, I feel like I actually am able to hear all of the best qualities and elements from every act represented in Better Lovers, and every idea for crafting a chaotic and unnerving metalcore song like this makes it clear how tenured and experienced and talented everybody involved is. And for myself specifically, hearing Greg's voice in this manner again was especially fulfilling because Dillinger had one of the more unique and impactful sounds I've ever heard from a band and that seeps its way into 30 under 13 in a really big way and just overall it was a really really fun experience like seeing the lineup on paper I had these ideas in my brain about what the sound would come across as and then actually hearing it it surpassed any expectations and I am fucking stoked to be able to see them live as part of the Under Oath and Ghost Inside tour in August. The final single that I'm going to go into detail on for the episode comes from Psychoframe. It is called Dragging Nazarene. When I talked about Better Lovers just now, I said that I think they can be the supergroup of the scene. And the reason for that bit of hesitation in my tone to declare them as the best supergroup is because of Psychoframe's existence. What we have here are members of Vatican, Culture Killer, and Dying Wish coming together to completely bash everyone's fucking face in with some of the best deathcore available in the scene right now. Um, there is no second of Dragging Nazarene that lets up its aggression or makes me believe that Psycho Frame is not already a massive success in bringing excitement to the genre. And said excitement will be amplified with the release of the band's debut EP, Remote God Seeker, this Friday, May 5th. 
And uh, another note about the song right quick. The music video is fucking excellent and nostalgic for someone like myself who initially got into the scene through AMVs back in the early 2000s. What Psycho Frame did was take some gory moments from different anime series like Elfin Lead, Helsing, and Another, and lets the song just blast while blood is being spilled everywhere. Um, there was a scene from Another in the video that... Okay, I, I guess... um. Spoiler alert for another if anybody is uh, cautious about that. Um, but there's a scene in another where Sakuragi gets her throat impaled by her umbrella. And seeing it in this video for Dragging Nazarene actually inspired me to go back and finish another because I had started it years ago and I just never went back to it. But now I'm almost finished with the series and I love it. And that's entirely thanks to this song. So that's going to do it for the singles rundown for the episode, and now I'm getting into the records, and like I said earlier, I have chosen seven from the last few weeks to give extensive thoughts on and try to relate to you guys what about them worked, what didn't work, and why they are the ones that I have selected out of everything that I possibly could have. So the first one up is Intellectual Property by Waterparks. Name value wise, I'm pretty sure that this is the biggest record that I'm talking about today. And I do believe that's for good reason. I think the name value that Waterparks have built for themselves ever since releasing Double Dare back in 2016, 17, whatever it was, it's warranted. Because for as admittedly cringe the band can be at times, and then as rabid as the fan base can also be, there's true talent here. Like some of the songs Waterparks have put out over the last few years have actually made a difference in year-end stuff like uh, War Crimes, which is off of 2019's fandom. Top 20, top 15 song that year for myself. Like I think it is fucking excellent. Um, Magnetic back in 2021 almost made top 100 off of Greatest Hits. Last year, uh, one of the songs that ended up being a part of intellectual property, uh, Funeral Grey, it was in the top 100. So for myself, Waterparks do have a proven track record of being able to hoop when it really matters. I think the best place to start would be the singles rollout for Intellectual Property. And I just mentioned Funeral Grey and how that song actually did make top 100 last year. Coming out of the record, I am of the mindset that Funeral Grey is the best song here. I feel like that track really just takes the like quirkiness and the fun elements that make water parks who they are. And it's all encapsulated in this one track that I think best suits the entire, uh, like thematic presentation of intellectual property. Like it's just so catchy and a lot of fun. The next single thereafter self sabotage, I, I think is another really fun track with a lot of the, uh, like signature lyricism that Waterparks is known for by this point, like on the chorus where it says, if you like when we talk, I'll dislocate my jaw. Straight up Riz. Uh, Fuck About It featuring Black Bear is a bit more tame in its pacing, but to me, it, it still captures that patented Waterparks essence, and Black Bear's verse fits in so well with the overall sound of that song. Real Super Dark is a great way to pick up the uh, 
aggression of the record in a way. And I do think having it as a second track gives listeners that notion almost immediately that this record can head into several different directions and not be defined by just one specific sound. Brainwashed is built around a ukulele rhythm and still manages to be this fun pop-centric song that I think Waterparks find a really nice groove in for themselves. And then to get into the rest of the record, uh, the first song, Starfucker. Uh, despite just being an intro song, I think Starfucker is one of the more impactful tracks on this record, and I really do love the hyperpop sound going for it. And to me, at least, like I think it's a rather welcoming song to the album for potential new listeners of the band. There is one song on here that I thought kind of, actually not kind of, I think it very much so missed the mark from where Waterparks were normally hitting on the record, and that's End of the Water Feel. There was just something about the execution of that song as a throwback synthwave type beat with some atmospheric elements, I guess. And I, I don't think that the moments on this song match up to the best moments on the record or even the moments that I would classify as just being decent. Um, Austin's delivery in the chorus isn't his best performance. And no matter how many times I go back to this album... Every time I reach end of the water feel, it's just like, okay, let's get through this. You know, like I just kind of want the song to be over and that's not a good thing. So yeah, I really, really can't get into that song. And to me, it does derail the momentum of intellectual property up to that point. Ritual. I mentioned earlier that as of now, I do look at Funeral Gray as my favorite song from the record. Ritual is right there. I think Ritual has this great energy and aggression to it and it's aggression that's not always there for water parks so to be able to hear it as part of ritual that easily made it one of the standout songs on the record for myself i do really like the back-to-back stretch at the end of the record with closer which has some really cool acoustic characteristics to make it stand out and a night out on earth which has a frantic hyperpop vibe to its delivery and there's a really cool easter egg type thing at the end of the song because there's a sound clip from one of Waterpark's earliest radio interviews from back in i think it was 2015 and to me it's meant to represent just how far the band has come since then and how they stand as a pillar band for so many people in the scene and i feel like Waterparks are at a point now where their fan base is so loyal and dedicated that they're going to be there for anything that they do. And while some people may find that to be like annoying, I guess, I see it as very admirable. And I appreciate the fact that Waterpark have such a dedicated fan base because I think that the effort put in by the band members up to now, it warrants that kind of adoration and dedication because Waterparks are genuinely talented and they always have been and even if i don't like intellectual property as much in the end as fandom or uh, greatest hits to me it's still something that i can look at and say you embody so much of what i want the pop side of the scene spectrum to sound like this is a very good outing from waterparks and the fan base i just mentioned I was going to say that I hope they're enjoying it, but I've seen the tweets. I, I know they are, and that's fucking awesome. A Kiss for the Whole World is the brand new record out right now from Manor Shikari. 
dog, you want to talk about fucking pillars in the scene, you want to talk about staples, you want to talk about bands that have always been there, and not just been there in presence, but been there in quality the entire way through, goddamn Enter Shikari. Because I genuinely don't remember what it felt like to be part of the scene or be somebody who like looks out at the scene and not have Enter Shikari there as one of the bands that I admire the most and respect the most. And it's been that way since I was like fucking 11 or 12 hearing Sorry You're Not a Winner for the first time and having that completely alter my brain pattern in the most grandiose of ways and the best of ways. Real quick, just for the culture guys, please do the Sorry You're Not a Winner clap with me. There we go. And this is actually running through my head right now. Let me get off what's maybe a negative take about this record, A Kiss for the Whole World, which is that um, Anna Shikari had a song late into 2022. It was called Bull, and it features Cody Frost. It's not a part of this track listing, and I actually do prefer it over any song here. And that's not to say that these songs don't fucking bang, because they do. But there was something about Bull that pulled me in more than any track here ended up doing. So that's potentially the negative aspect. To get onto every single positive that I have for the record, in my opinion, I do believe that this is the most complete package of an Inner Shikari album since the Minesweep from back in 2015. Um, the spark and nothing is true and everything is possible, I do enjoy, but for me, the Minesweep was like this moment in time where I believed that every bit of Enter Shikari's personality shined through on that record, and I kind of do feel the same way about A Kiss for the Whole World. I think what this album does better than uh, the two prior ones is kind of just give off that very like raw, electronic, unapologetic nature of Enter Shikari. And to me, that was the apparent direction, even hearing the lead single, Please Set Me On Fire. And I do kind of remember talking about that song a few months ago, back when it was a single, and just really like a admiring the build-up to the chorus, how it kind of has a almost like a dance nature to uh, some of that build. And then once the chorus comes in, it is this atmospheric, vibrant piece of art that is so indicative of who Inishikari have always been. The other two singles, It Hurts and Bloodshot. Hearing them as singles, I thought that they were good songs, but now hearing them as part of A Kiss for the Whole World, they feel bigger and stronger than they did as singles, and especially the chorus for It Hurts. Like, hearing that section back over and over again on this album, it makes me feel like I became guilty of something that I have kind of, um, like, I don't want to say judge people for in the past, but let's just say that because I can't think of a better word. I've judged people in the past for not giving Andrew Shikari their flowers and for not hailing this band in as high of regards as they should be hailed. I probably fucked up by not championing those two songs as strongly as I should have back then. From there, the rest of the album does an excellent job at continuing to build the legacy of Andrew Shikari while cementing every reason for why this ended up being the band's first number one in the UK. I think the title track, which opens the record, is one of the most effective opening songs that any album so far this year has had. It embraces every unique element to Enter Shikari, whether it be 
you know, the synth style or the like pulsating rhythm in the chorus and said chorus that Ro Reynolds is able to like really morph to his insanely cool and sick style of delivery. It's a fucking perfect song. I think Leap Into the Lightning provides this very cool contrast between verse and chorus in the way that the verse has this uh, drum track that it's built upon. And then once you get to the chorus, the rest of the band comes in and it's like this beaming ray of light shining down onto one of the most fucking excellent and goaded bands the scene has ever had. Deadwood is one of the standout songs of the album, in my opinion, and I just find so much like excitement and adoration and how the song is able to build itself from being kind of slower initially and then finally exploding with this like a uh, like a symphonic type of a of a tone going for it towards the end once the rest of the band is like fully fleshed out on the song. Jailbreak is another song that does a really sick job at basing itself and kind of having that slower canvas for Inishikari to really relay every bit of their versatility to the listeners. There are two other like really big standout songs towards the end of the record for myself. Goldfish and Giant Pacific Octopus, I Don't Know You Anymore. Those songs, to me, kind of show off every remaining bit of expertise that Andrew Shikari have left to show off on this record. And what I mean by that is like Goldfish does a great job at kind of laying the foundation for a more like laid back, mellowed out chorus. Whereas Giant Pacific Octopus is the chance for the band to uh, like let their sounds soar as high as they ever have in the closing moments of the record. And then the song that actually does act as the closer, which is Giant Pacific Octopus swirling off into infinity it's kind of like this, uh, like an end credits type of uh, beat going for it, if that makes any sense. And it's just like a really cool way for you, the listener, to just like lie back, relax, and really absorb everything that you heard throughout A Kiss for the Whole World. Because A Kiss for the Whole World is one of the most enthralling experiences that I've had with a record so far this year. And to be able to say that about an Enjikari album this late into their tenure, I think it speaks just so heavily to the talent within this band, the excellent musicianship, the excellent craftsmanship, everything that makes Enoshikari one of the best bands in the world is present on this record. And whether you are a tenured fan of them or somebody who is just wanting to now get into them, this record needs your attention. Let's talk about the new EP out right now by Brand of Sacrifice. It is Between Death and Dreams. So there haven't been many chances in the past for me to really go in depth on Brandon Sacrifice. And some of that uh, falls into timing. Like, I believe before the rollout for Between Death and Dreams, the only chance I really had uh, was the Dark Bloom mix that they had with We Came as Romans, which I thought was fucking excellent. But the other reason why is because I have just been fucking up on my own end by not giving them their flowers and giving them their credit. I easily could have, could have talked about Lifeblood back in 2021 as part of the uh, 
the top albums list because it had a real case for being there. But for whatever reason, I didn't include it. I wasn't tapped in like that. Whereas now I am, and I'm here to give Between Death and Dreams its motherfucking flowers. The opening song for the EP is Blinded, and I really, really fuck with the dystopian style production that is going on at the start of the song and then how everything from there just explodes and Kyle's voice is so apropos for the setting that is created here by Brandon Sacrifice and just the way that everybody in the band carries their weight and just brings this song to life and then by the end of it that whole like destruction and chaos sound prevails and it's just such a fucking fun time dude I love this song the song thereafter, Exodus, which was a single beforehand, it follows much of the same suit, although the chorus takes a different approach by using some clean vocals, but it's done in a way where it still feels so uh, apoplectic in the same way that Blinded did. And again, Dynasty, the song after that, another single, just continues to build Between Death and Dreams as one of the most elite deathcore releases of the last few months, maybe even last year. Like, that song knows how to build an atmosphere, like, just right from the second you press play. Immediately, a snare bomb is there to just beat the shit out of you, and it is a an excellent time. The closing song, which is the title track, Between Death and Dreams, is my favorite on the EP as of now. I think, like, the production choices right from when the song starts, it perfectly builds the entire aura of the track and how fast-paced and chaotic it can be while carrying a chorus that is honestly the most like accessible portion of the entire EP, but it's accessible in a way that does not mitigate any of the heaviness that Brand of Sacrifice wields. If anything, it kind of accentuates it. And I feel like this song in the end just really made every idea of Between Death and Dreams come together in this really big manner that establishes Brand of Sacrifice once again as an elite deathcore act. If you're not on the Brand of Sacrifice train by now, you're genuinely missing out on something so special because no matter what it is that they do, they excel at it. They can take these big uh, production sounds and just kind of craft these excellent songs around them. And there are other bands that can do that, sure, but there aren't many that can do it with the prowess of Brand of Sacrifice. Okay, so before I get into these next four releases... I briefly wanted to make mention of something that got discourse on Twitter for a bit. And like, it was honestly kind of like piling on, but um, Finn McKenty, if you guys don't know, Finn McKenty is a YouTuber. His channel name is the Punk Rock MBA. Um, I personally don't have any issues with Finn. He's honestly like probably an inspiration for myself, given what I want to be doing in this space. But he made a tweet that said something about modern metalcore being boring. Modern metalcore is only boring if you're listening to boring bands. As cliche as that sounds, I believe that's what's happening here. That's the truth. Because these next four bands that I'm going to talk about are some of the more like shining and prominent rising acts in metalcore that people really should be paying attention to. The first one that I want to mention is Centralia and their album, That Which Feeds on Life. Oh, 
maybe because it's been a few weeks now, but I don't actually remember how I came across this album from Centralia. Um, you know, maybe it's because I read a fun fact about the brain, how it starts to deteriorate when we get to 27 or thereabouts, and I just turned 28. Um, but that doesn't matter right now because my job here isn't to tell you guys how I found Centralia. It's to tell you all how insanely fucking good I believe this album is. And that enjoyment factor for myself was made evident just from the opening song, Red Limousine, Night of Lust. And the way that the album kind of embodies this like DIY production that feels like kind of grimy and rusty in areas and how that creates this atmosphere that is tailor-made for somebody like myself who idolizes that 2000s style of like metalcore and post-hardcore and that overall sound and direction. And Centralia captures it perfectly. Um, Red Limousine is kind of like chilling and unnerving in some areas while still managing to be catchy. And I feel like you can extend that sentiment all the way throughout the album. The song thereafter, Whenever You Please, it's a little bit more impactful right from the beginning. Like, it doesn't waste any time in that buildup. And then once it gets to the chorus, again, what I mentioned about, like, 2000s metalcore, it is just so centered around that. And it is, like, just fucking serotonin in my ears hearing that kind of production and those kinds of guitar melodies in this day and age. And Centralia do an amazing fucking job at being able to build a sound that is not just nostalgic, but also like forward thinking and boundary pushing in a lot of ways. And just any song here, I feel like you can pick out. And if you have that affinity for that type of metalcore, you're going to have every desire appeased. It doesn't matter if it's Store 40 or The Cure of Hopelessness. Centralia is delivering those exact sounds at the right time, in the right manner, and as long as it gets to the right ears, there is like seemingly no end to what I believe this band can achieve in terms of giving metalcore this like um this sense of nostalgia, like I mentioned before, while still being a band that can like hold all this up. That was my cat Levi right now. Uh, I hope he agrees with me about Centralia. Levi, do you agree with me about Centralia? Let's just say he does. There's a back-to-back stretch here of the songs, She's Tired and Backseat Car Ride. She's Tired, it's kind of a, a little bit of an interlude in a way, but it's not even really a, a song in the uh, the general sense of that. It's this, like, at least to me, it sounds like a, like audio from a VHS tape, and it's just very like unsettling it sounds like something that i really should not be listening to and then how that bleeds in the backseat car ride and the aggression and emotion in that song those two tracks put together make one of the brightest moments of not just this album but any album i'm talking about right now in this episode and then at large any album that i've discussed all year so far the overall score that i gave this album was eight and a half and considering how high i am on the album like, why was that the score? And the reasoning is because uh, the penultimate song, it's called It Takes Too Long to Become Familiar, But It Takes Even Longer to Forget. It's a, a nine-minute 
like interlude song like there's not really anything happening to it it's just meant to like create this very um like weird creepy atmosphere and it does a good job at that but i think in my thought process when scoring the record i thought it kind of like um maybe disrupted the momentum built between uh alone in the cul-de-sac and then that which feeds on life the title track i still stand by that but looking back on it like me not really being so into it takes so long to become familiar that should not have had any effect on how i scored the album how i looked at it because that which feeds on life is genuinely a mesmerizing and god tier record i think this album holds so much weight when it comes to giving metalcore the identity that i believe it has right now in that this genre is in one of the best states that I've ever seen it in, and Centralia does have a hand in that, and I would hope that more people can hear this album, because if they do, I am truly of the belief that they can feel as strongly as I do in favor of it, if not more, because what Centralia did here was remarkable. This album is excellent and incredible and one of the most fulfilling journeys that any body of work in music has taken me on so far this year. These next three albums all released last week, making this one of the uh, most exciting and motivating and influential weeks I've covered so far this year, and then maybe at large in the history of this platform. Um, the first one I want to bring up from this crop is An Underlying Hum by King Yosef. So my introduction to King Yosef would have come over a year ago at this point, and it was when he was featured on the Sad Address song Dissenter, which ended up being like number five or four in the top 100 song series of 2022 that I did. So that instantly made Yosef somebody who I wanted to pay attention to. And whenever he had something to his name, like on his own, I wanted to be here to gas it up because off of that dissenter feature, I could tell that this is an immensely talented individual. So an underlying hums rollout, like I had to be all over that shit. And I hope I made that clear a couple weeks ago when I talked about power, which was a single for the album. Power is one of the coolest fucking things I've been able to hear so far this year and how it takes on metalcore while being industrial, while just being like really chilling and weird in a great way so many times throughout the track. Power made it to where I understood that Yosef isn't just somebody who um, like can, you know, knock it out of the park on a guest feature spot. He can fucking hoop on his own for real, for real. The next single after that was Echo, which does continue the trend of what I mentioned about industrial metalcore, although I don't think its aggression is as like prominently displayed as Bowers, and not that that's a bad thing, because this track still gets a... It, it does a good enough job at conveying the overall sound of an underlying hum perfectly, even though, like I said, there is a bit of contrast between that and power, which I thought worked well in establishing what this record would entail throughout the rollout. Um... When you get into the rest of the record, the album begins with Frame, which is an intro song that sets the stage for the rest of the record so, so well by giving off this horror-style sound that can leave the listener in 
what might be an uncomfortable spot in some ways, but still be so interested in hearing where the album intended to go from there. That song leads into Cascade of Doubt, which spends the first bit of its duration building itself around a drum beat that fades out for a bit to give that space to Yosef to start delivering his message vocally. And then by the end of the song, the characteristics of the album find their way into the mix, and I think combining this with Frame gives any listener the necessary glimpses at everything they need to be aware of in order to be prepared for what an underlying hum is going to deliver to them. A song that shows up later on, Nameless, has a new metal flair to its delivery that I think Yosiv really channels a lot of his abilities successfully through, like on the worn down delivery in the chorus that gives a lot of credibility to the aforementioned new metal sound. Drift Below adds to the overall creepy atmosphere to the album by being a slower track that really does a great job at letting the production quirks of the album set the tone without having to try too hard. Like, it's just naturally unsettling, and then there are these moments mixed in that actually sound like sonic jump scares. Pulling Out a Thread is a slower song, but it generally might be my favorite. Like, if it's not power right now, then it's Pulling Out a Thread, because that song is able to take everything that I've mentioned about, like, the creepy atmosphere of the album, and accentuate it in a lot of really sick ways. And the same thing with The Crevice Light Seeps In and the title track. I, I think what I'm like really trying to get at when it comes to how well an underlying hum sets its own stage is in how much I uh, have like this adoration for like uh, the like creepy side of entertainment medium. So like survival horror video games and horror movies and that sort of stuff, horror imagery. I'm really into that shit, and I think what an underlying hum does so well is make itself a soundtrack for those mediums. Like, the album is unnerving and chilling and unsettling and at times uncomfortable, and it leaves you wondering, what am I listening to and what am I going to be listening to next? Because it has that atmosphere to it that makes it just so thrilling to listen to and get through. And I think Yosef did a fucking outstanding job at setting that stage for an underlying hum. And to add on to what I've been saying about modern metalcore, I don't see how anybody can hear this album and believe that the medium right now is in a boring state. The self-titled album by From Joy is insane. And even just calling it insane still feels like I'm not getting across well enough just everything that this album embodies and how it made me feel every second that I spent listening to it. I wasn't really tapped into From Joy's material until the rollout for this album, and that was off of uh, Seraph, which, which features Iris.exe. But hearing that song, I was just so taken aback by everything that From Joy stood for that I went ahead and heard the 2021 release, It Lingers, and just having that like now in the back of my mind, it was impossible to not have this great level of anticipation to hear all of From Joy. Because I just mentioned Seraph, I'll go ahead and expand on my feelings for that track. 
and make it clear that this brand of metalcore that punches you right in the face from the opening second is exactly my type of shit. And the song carries this emotional weight to it that Iris was able to perfectly add layers of beauty to through her voice that acts as like the, I guess like metaphorical light that beams through the dark clouds that is this song. Uh, Acela is one of the best opening songs I've heard on any record so far this year, and I think it is the perfect way to throw the listeners into the pit of despair that is this record by throwing fucking blast beats and calamity into their faces before circling around to this electronic section that comes out of nowhere, but is one of the most exhilarating moments on the entire album for myself. Morbidly Perfect, which features Connor Sweeney, lives up to its namesake by being just that and painting this metalcore malevolence at every turn and keeps the listener intrigued through its sheer chaos. There's a song that appears in the middle of the record called Of the Shapes of Hearts and Humans that is right there among my favorites on From Joy as of now because of just how excellent it sounds in putting together something that is drastically scaled back in comparison to the prior songs. But, like, it still brings to the center of this album the unnerving nature that From Joy is so excellently crafting. Like, it's still a weird and creepy song for reasons contrasting something like Acela or Seraph. And then right after that song, it's like the album uses the song Machine to snap out of the trance that Shapes of Hearts had put it into by just battering the listener for a minute and a half with a blistering-ass metalcore song. From Joy, which is a song that literally shares the name of the album and band, is another example at how good From Joy are at creating impactful and apoplectic-sounding metalcore, and then Icarus, which is the album's closer, seemingly brings together all of the elements from prior songs, whether they be heavy or soothing and everything in between, and mashes them into one cumulative track that finishes itself off with what sounds like a fucking jazz interlude. Like, there are so many moments on this album where I had to just like stop and ask myself, what am I listening to? And like, I'm not trying to make myself sound like some, you know, virtuoso when it comes to the scene and the history of the scene. But what I want you guys to understand is how long I've been listening to this kind of music. Like I'm on like fucking 22 years now of this shit. And for me to be able to hear an album and say, I have never heard anything like this before. That means something because so many times I listen to whether it be metalcore or post-hardcore, any genre in the scene, and I might think to myself, okay, I've heard this before. It's still good, but I've heard it before. From Joy is completely unique to themselves. This sound is something that I feel like I've never been exposed to, but now that I have, I want more of it. I cannot get enough of what From Joy are doing, and this album is something that is going to stick with me for a very long time, and I feel so like privileged to have been able to experience it right now. The final record for the episode is the new EP out by Balmura. It is with Thorns of Glass and Petals of Grief. Okay, so this is a five song EP and it should be pretty quick to get through the review for it. But in that same breath, I want to get across to you guys just how much I truly genuinely do love this EP. Like to scale back the curtain a bit and let you all into my thought process right now. 
I think this is my favorite EP of the year so far. And if the year ended today and I had to do the top 50 record series, this is top 10, maybe even top 5. And that's because what Balmora did here was tap into every facet of throwback metalcore that I idolize and want to use this platform to champion. I think the opening song from Creaking Branches' Dead Leaves release does a great job at making the listener question what it is that they're about to hear, because while it's a short piano melody, it still makes this unsettling environment that you know is going to disintegrate the second that Under the Weight of a Blackened Sky hits. And that's exactly what happened, because that song is a, as grandiose of a clinic at how to execute this style of metalcore as I've ever heard. Like, its entire duration feels like taking every facet of the genre and using them to create something memorable. The next song after that is July Unending, which is honestly not only my favorite song on this EP, but one of my favorite songs of the year overall so far. It was the number one song for Scenic Overlook Week 17, because I cannot fucking pull myself away from it. And I don't know exactly what it is about that. Like, I've heard this song so many times over the last few days, and each time I hear it, I feel like I'm like only growing my love for it, but I still can't really like pinpoint what it is about this song that is so alluring to me. It, whether that be, you know, the guitar melodies that come in during the first minute of the song, or the switch up in pacing that comes after the breakdown during the middle of it. Whatever it is, I'm thankful for it because July Unending is a masterpiece. An Angel's Final Prayer is another look at how a metalcore band in this day and age can be enthralling and invigorating. And then the closing track, A Dagger to the Heart of Finality. It shouldn't have worked for myself because it is 719 and I've gone on my spiel before about long songs and how I feel towards them, but A Dagger to the Heart of Finality never once made itself boring. I, I was never like finding myself dragging through this song. I never thought like, okay, when is it going to end? You know, like I was captivated all the way throughout it. And for a metalcore band nowadays to be able to do that, I feel like it is like almost an impossible feat, but Balmura managed to pull it off. They pulled off so many spectacular things on this EP. And I kind of want to circle back to what I said earlier before talking about Centralia. The the idea that modern metalcore is boring, it only is that way if you make it that way. But there are so many bands out there, whether it's Centralia, Balmura, King Yosef, From Joy, who are able to take modern metalcore and give it this spin that adds so much life and so much character to it. And I want to use this episode specifically to get that across to you guys. Modern metalcore is amazing like right now i love the genre as much as i ever have and i would hope that you guys do take what it is that i suggest and then even what like other uh you know twitter accounts might put out there like the craziest moments in new metal history account or um you know other breakdown accounts uh rt your favorite bands like whatever it might be there are other people out there who are putting forth everything right with modern metalcore and that needs a bigger spotlight on it. And that's it. That was every album and EP and single from the last three weeks that I chose to pick out and talk about. And, you know, I know that I've not been like as attentive to this podcast as I really should be if I want to grow it. And I'm hoping that starting next week, I'm able to change that. And I believe I can because there's a lot next week exciting for me to talk about, whether it's Bring Me the Horizon, Currents, or Psycho Frame. Um, it's going to be a big deal. And then later on this month, fucking sleep token, like there's a lot to be excited about and I want to be there to discuss it with all of you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode 
And as always, for the love of the game, let's make a scene.